Folks, welcome back to Better. I'm your host, Mark Brand. This is season two. I've got another incredible guest lined up for you today. Also, it's a reminder to us to not allow our egos based on our achievements to get ahead of who we are and what we came. Like often when I go home to visit Houston, I go through all my photo albums and look at my life before Humble Ride, before my music career, when I was like, you know, the gap to kid before I arrived at this version of myself I am now, just to remind myself, like, you're still that dude. Don't get caught up in this. Like, you're still that kid, you know, with acting in this face, you know, embarrassed of his yearbook picture, but liking this girl who didn't like you back. You're still that kid. Don't forget about that person, you know? 27 years strong in the entertainment industry. He's worked in artist management, owned his own label, an expert in music curation. And I don't, I don't say that like your friend has a good Spotify playlist. I mean, an expert in music curation. We'll get into that. Supervision and cultural programming. And on top of all that, deep into international men- mentorship with tons of artists and creators. A couple folks on the list, John Legend, Childish Gambino. You probably never heard of him, to name a few. As for clients, his lists include Google, HBO Max. He's worked with Sonos, Oakley. The brands just go on and on and on. Uh, and EatsCon, one of my favorite festivals in the U.S. It's focused around food. Ant brings all the incredible programming to that that matters. Today, he's going to tell us all about his journey, how he came to found his company, Humble Riot. Brother Ant, welcome to Better. How are you? My man, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much, Mark. So happy. And I got the pleasure of having you sit behind me here a few weeks ago when you were in town for TED to spend some time with you there. But to have you finally agree to be on the other side of a microphone and has spent his life putting people behind microphones. Uh, so it's just so great for us to be able to have you here. I always like to start the show with, that's how I'm going to introduce you, but how are you introducing yourself these days? It's a good question. I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, so I introduced myself as a music supervisor, curator, a designer of experiences that are focused around connection transformation and inspiration and people feeling seen, heard, and inspired and acknowledged. Well, I can say home run on all levels, having been part of many things that we do together. But back to when we met each other, Ant and I had been being virtually introduced for probably the better part of five or six years before we finally got to connect. And we did in New York City uh, and we were on Manhattan. And about 15 minutes in, you invited me to the incredible playlist, which is uh, Jazzy Jeff and yourself put together just this amazing curated event for everything you just said, Mm -hmm. truly to galvanize and to build up the next level and the current levels of music. And you invited me to come out there and I got to witness and be in your magic uh, and just see it happening around me. So folks can understand what's really happening there. It's 120 plus of legendary people from the music industry, from Robert Glasper to De La Soul to Masego and up and coming people as well all working together and jamming together, but talking about real life experience and how they can be better, mm-hmm. truly. Uh, and so those are the types of things that you've created, but how did you get started in all of this? Where does it all come from for you? Dude, I'll be honest with you. I kind of like arrived at these things based on my own life journey. Like in regards to Players Retreat, like with Jeff, I used to work for Will back in the day in A&R capacity working on things like a Wild Wild West soundtrack, Love and Basketball, and I knew Jeff, and Jeff was always a person that he and I always vibed on what was happening next in music, right? You know, mm-hmm. we were flipping Dilla tapes back in the day and like, have you heard this? Have you heard this? And then he had this idea around playlists, and he knew at the time that I was designing experiences on my own in, in New York. And he brought me this amazing idea. And my question to him was, this sounds really dope, but why are you doing this? 
you know, why are you gathering these people together? And I helped him build a curriculum around learning and discovery, you know, around these, these sense of inspiration, collaboration, and motivation. So my personal journey, as far as being a student of culture and wanting to see things and learn things propelled me just to a space of design my own experiences where people can feel elevated and amplified. So the players retreat came out of that. And not, and honestly, it was, it was a way for me to get back to my heroes. You know, music is my first language, my first love. So these cats I grew up listening to, how can I design an environment that's supportive of, of them acknowledging their journey and helping them be better and move forward in more creative and holistic ways? It's an incredible thing. And you and I talk about this often, but I think to share just a tool immediately. We're three minutes in. I knew we were going to crack a toolbox today, but really go in. But that tool is, and we hear about it, and the trope is strong for a reason, creating the container for others to be better or giving of yourself selflessly Mm -hmm. to truly better or enrich the lives of others comes back tenfold. Yes? Yes, sir. And I was raised that way. And my parents, like, I grew up in a upper middle class black family in Houston, Texas. And I never had to want for things, you know? But my parents always told me there's others out there who are in need. So at a very young age, I was always on the front lines, whether we were like provide Christmas families in the projects in Houston, having pen pals in Haiti, sending them clothes. I was always ingrained in that in my upbringing. So I never forgot that. And I brought that forward into my life. It's very, very important. There's no question. And from the first time sitting with you, there's a, there's a learned wisdom that comes with giving of yourself that shows up embodied. Mm-hmm. It shows up embodied with people and you recognize it in other folks where there is a, I want to say where people are first coming to a worker, they have spent a life in privilege and then they come to the, to the worker trying to help people. There's a nervous energy that comes yeah. along with that and a little bit of an imposter syndrome and am, am I doing this for the right reasons and this feels uncomfortable until mm-hmm. it doesn't and there's a wisdom that comes with always having it and your mom and dad have obviously played a, a very significant and continue to play a significant role in your life. What was it like growing up in Houston? My mother and father exposed me to culture at a very early age. So I grew up playing instruments, which a lot of people don't know about me. I was, um, I played piano, trumpet, cornet, baritone, violin, and guitar. What? What's going on, Prince? What are we talking about right now? So I grew up very musical. And I remember when I was a child, my, my parents had this really robust vinyl collection. And I would just look at the records and just like look at the pictures and just go into this other place. And my parents decided to put the headphones on me as a child. And I would just like drift away to this other realm. And that's how music found me and chose me. Right. And so I was always immersive in arts. My mom was, you know, sponsoring black plays in Houston, you know, bringing people like Alex Haley, who created Roots to Houston to speak. Like I was immersed in these different things, you know, while being immersed in these cultural landscapes of giving back to people. I remember I had a very distinct memory when I was in um, the line for a bank at a drive through teller of my parents, my mom and my brother years ago. And there was a man asking for change. And he looked a little disheveled and like a little, a little scary. And my mom was not acknowledging this person, right? And I said, mom, we have to help the man. And she kept ignoring me. I was like, mom, we have to help the man. And she wasn't paying me attention. And I said, mom, we have to help the man he could be Jesus. Ooh. I was five years old. And she looked at me. She was like, what? I was like, he can be Jesus. We got to help the man. So those things were always embedded in me from my parents. And just, I came to this earth like that, you know, wanting to give back. And Houston was a very culture rich community. And my parents exposed me to a lot of different things that were outside, was prescribed to me at a very early age. So when I got older, 
I constantly began to seek these things on my own. I immediately want to like call your mom and add her to this interview. (laughs) But I'm going to do that on a personal level at some point and have these conversations because I mean, I feel like we've spent a few hundred hours together and hearing that about the instruments right off the hop, I'm like, I'm floored. You caught me a little off guard. Yeah. But I mean, there's zero question to me that you definitely do show up in the world like that and always have. But what's a, what's a defining moment that takes you to LA and New York City and into music? Like, where do you then go from being a lover of music and listening to Sly and the Family Stone and getting lost in the gatefold yeah. to saying, no, this is what I'm going to do with my life? I remember very clearly. So I grew up reading the Source magazine and I would always look to see what I should be buying. And on campus, I went to Morehouse College in Atlanta. I became known as the guy on campus. Go ask Ant what's coming out. He knows. Because I was always at the record store seeing you know, what was going on, listening to this radio show at Georgia State. I would have a tape cassette ready to record whatever they played. That's when I first heard Protect Your Neck by Wu-Tang. So I was just early on things. Like Souls of Mischief, Far Side. I, was, I became the guy on campus. And I was like, I want this to be my career. I had no idea how to pursue this. My parents are like, that sounds ridiculous. We want you to go to school. <laughs> We paid for you to go to school. You're going to go get a job. I was like, cool. But I was reading the Source magazine. So I started looking at all the labels under the arts that I liked in the back of the Source magazine. I got a phone book out. I'm aging myself. And just start calling the local offices. Can I intern? Can I intern? And everyone said no. And then this one guy shouts to Mike Garum at Red Distribution. We got touched again recently after all this time. He was like, I have nothing right now. Call me in January. January 1. Hi, it's Anthony Demby from Mike Garum. And he gave me an internship. He opened the door for me. And Mike worked with um, Relativity Records that had like Bone Thugs and Harmony first of the month, Common Resurrection. That was my first internship in the music business. And I remember doing things like calling stores to make sure they had the product, putting up the displays at record stores with someone else that worked at the label for Tommy Boy, right? So I would just in, in the mix and go into all these different shows and passing out CDs and cassettes just to be in the mix. And I remember telling my parents, I was like, this is my career. I'm going to do this full time. And they were like, no, you're not. I was like, okay, but I'm going to do this full time. And my father (laughs) comes to visit me in my junior year in college for a father and son trip. But what I didn't know was he was coming to tell me to not pursue the music business. At that time, I was working at this label. I was also interned for Select Records, running around the Source van with the Lost Boys, Mob Deep, AMG, I'm shouts to Hawaii Mike, who was driving the source van back then. Yeah, that's right. And I was just in my flow. And my dad saw how invigorated I was by doing these things. And he went back to Houston and said, hey, um, Benet, shout out to my mom, Benet. He's pursuing this whether our blessing comes or not. Ooh. He's going to do this. And now my mom will hit me and ask me, hey, when's Frank Ocean's album coming out? Like, my parents are in it now. They're like, we know <laughs> it's Drake dissing so-and-so now. What happened between Drake and this person? And, you know, so... They're in the mix now because I socialized them to my passion of pursuing this regardless of what obstacles were presented to me at that time. What a beautiful way to share that speaking your truth to power and being yep. in it has echoes, right? And it, re- yep. it really is. And yes, shout out to Hawaii Mike, who was a guest last week. But I want to go back to that conversation with your dad. Yeah. Because I know that one. I know that one firsthand yeah. too, which is a, I can see in you that you're not going to put this down. Yeah. Right. And I think what we are, we're raised in the culture of avoid, avoidance and lies to say, I'm going to pretend to be doing this, but I really am pursuing this because I know that this is not viable in the cultural normative of it. Yeah. So when you stand in that, 
I think the fact is that we don't teach people to stand in it and just deal with often the repercussions that may come because Mm -hmm. those repercussions could be beautiful. Mm -hmm. In the instance of your father, him saying, okay, this is where we're at. You know, he's a civil engineer. Um, He worked for a company for a very long time. And then on the side at nighttime, we go to this small office, this office park and work in his own company. So he had the entrepreneurial spirit too, you know? So he was also pursuing his passions outside of his corporate life. So I think something resonated with him and he just saw like how much I was in my joy, you know, how happy I was doing these things. It never felt like work to me. I, I was pursuing the seed that they not knowingly put in me by putting those headphones on me when I was three years old, you know? And the wild thing is, bro, is that he didn't tell me this until um, a year into starting Humble Ride, my company. Um, my friends threw me like a, a year of uh, celebration, right? And they made this video of all my friends saluting me on, for all my close friends, the artists I've worked with. And my dad was in the video and he confessed to me saying, I came to Atlanta to tell you to not do this. Wow. I didn't know this in real time. Wow. A conversation per se. You never told me, but I came to, to tell you to not do this, but I saw how gung-ho you were about this, and I knew we had to support you for you to be successful, and he did that. What a moment. What happens to you in that space? Like You're obviously watching all friends, heroes, peers, and then you see that from your father. Does the other shoe drop? Like, have you? Did you always kind of know? When we talked about this recently. I told my parents, I was like, you all did this. You put those <laughs> ones on me. You're, so all your discontent back then is like, you planted this seed in me. And it's grown in ways I couldn't, you know, even begin to fathom to explain. And I'm sure they couldn't be any prouder. My dad thinks I'm cool. You know, my dad <laughs> thinks I just do cool, interesting things. And like, when I tell him about things I'm doing, he has no context of what eats con there is or like some of these things, but they seem cool to him. And he sees how happy I am. And to your point, how fully I'm embodied I am in these experiences that I'm able to be involved with. What are we doing this for but to make sure that our children, our family members, our peers, our dear friends yeah. are experiencing happiness and joy? And yeah. similar conversations throughout my career with my dad, yeah. and who is also an engineer, raised in Alberta, comes from very, very poor beginnings. And when I, you know, going to university, I took radio for a little while. I was like, hey, I'm going to pursue this because he really wanted me to go to university. It was my second kick at the can. And I started DJing and I came home and I was like, I'm going to be a DJ full time. He's like, on the radio, right? And I was like, yeah, no, no, at the pub, I'm going to be playing at the university pub. And he's like, this is, and he just saw, he came to actually watch me play. He was like, okay, well, I'm going to come by on Friday night and see. And he came and he danced a little bit to some Stevie Wonder records and was like, I can see that this is, yeah. this is what lights you up. So, you know, you have my full support. Yeah, uh, my, my mom didn't feel the same way. <laughs> but, you know, but for that, again, I think your parents, as they come along, when my Brought my mom into my first restaurant that was named after her. I didn't tell her it was going to be named after her. I told her it was going to be called the Boulder Hotel, uh, which it was a historical name for the space. And she was in the middle of dialysis and having a really rough go. And she turns up on the block and we she just dialyzed that day in Vancouver, brought her down the street and she saw the sign with her name on it. And we walked inside and they were playing Benita Applebaum by Tribe. <laughs> and the whole staff was like just so excited to see her and to meet her. And it was a 30-foot ceiling, 2,500-square-foot restaurant, just stunning space. And she was like, this is yours? I thought it was going to be a lot smaller. <laughs> <laughs> that was her first line to me after all of this like build yeah. up for months. And you know, I think family has this beautiful way of always humbling us, but also yeah. allowing us to see what's really important. And that happiness is really the center of it. 100%. And so whether they get it or not, isn't really all that relevant, but them thinking we're cool has got to be the greatest thing in the world. 
Yeah, and I think also it's a reminder to us to not allow our egos based on our achievements to get ahead of who we are and what we came. Mm. Like often when I go home to visit Houston, I go through all my photo albums and look at my life before all these, before Humble Ride, before my music career, when I was like the, you know, the gap tooth kid in the school play or like, I, I used to design, um, I grew up as an artist, a visual artist. So I used to design the t-shirts for track meets in yes. high school. And I used to like yes. do the, the playbills and elementary school for the school plays. So looking at all those bits and pieces before I arrived at this version of myself, I am now just to remind myself, like, you're still that dude. Don't get caught up in this. Like you're still that kid, you know, with acting in this face, you know, embarrassed of his yearbook picture, but liking this girl who didn't like you back. You're still that kid. Don't forget that about that person, you know? Incredibly important. And I think in an industry that is surrounded with, we've now created a character for you. Mm. You're going to play this character out loud. Do not deviate from this character. Yeah. Right. We're seeing superstars deviating and just being them absolute selves, which is wonderful to see that embraced. But yeah. for a long time, particularly in your career, I'd say 20 years plus, that was not normative behavior, right? It was, you play this character. Method Man, you are Method Man. Yeah. What is it like to be in and around all of that? Because you are the person you are. And in yeah. any conversation I've had with you where I'm having a challenge, you always just encourage me to dig back into my truth and myself. Yeah. So how do you manage artists who are yeah. expected to be this and then hold that same tension of, but I want you to be the truest, happiest you? How does that, how does that work for you? You know, it's a moving target at times. I think it's also can be isolating and lonely because to your point, the industry is telling you not to be that. The industry is telling you to be the product that they need to sell and market, right? Whether that product doesn't align with who you are as a person, what's the success there, right? So, you know, when I was managing artists, I would put things around them that would serve as a mirror so they could always see themselves. You know, sometimes it'd be a conversation with me. Sometimes I'm linking them with my healers in LA to get some body work done, just to always be, so that when they're walking in this, in this very transactional extractive space, they're always seeing themselves for who they truly are, you know? And I think um, that's helped them move through some real challenges and also do self-inquiry while they're going through these hard spaces. You know, I think it's important to do that because, you know, we look at like social media, all the things that are outward facing, they're the highlight reels of our lives. They're not the true story. So I do my best to live in my truth and just tell what's true for me you know, to encourage others to do that. And also to be example of, you know, the possibility of doing that, you know, just being yourself. Like I look at Humble Riot, like people ask me what I do. I was like, I'm literally monetizing, building a life off being myself, you know, and using my gifts to pursue my interests and bring those interests and wisdom to other people so they can have live better lives. You know, I love all of that. And I want to step a little bit back, but around this thought of self-inquiry, I'd like mm -hmm. to pull that apart a little bit. Mm -hmm. Because when we think of the magnitude, of the issues of people who are in the public eye, Mm -hmm. If we distill that a little bit, we all have the exact same issues. The human experience is the human experience. It doesn't yeah. change if you're a billionaire. There's just more people watching, yeah. right? So what does it look like in a day-to-day -day basis to also live in your truth where you are being forced to confine, whether that be a job or a relationship or a, yeah. a religion or whatever that may be? How would you advise just anybody to have that self-inquiry and to check in with self? What's What are some tools that you use? So for one, I have a very... Um prominent spiritual practice. You know, I've been meditating for about 13 plus years, maybe 14 years now before it was, before it was cool. <laughs> sure. Um, a yoga practice, a mindfulness practice, a movement practice. And I'm a big believer in coaching. You know, I've been receiving um, 
worked with a guy named Bobby Lau. who has been coaching me for eight years. Um, shout out to Bobby. I have a therapist who hits me in my head every two weeks. And they're just always reminding me of who I am, how I'm experiencing myself and where I am with myself. So when I'm navigating these other worlds of work, I just know where I'm operating from. You know, if I'm operating in scarcity, I have tools to address that, whether it be breath work or just like stop what I'm doing for a second. Just look, you know, when I find myself being overwhelmed, which can happen, I've learned that it's not just what I'm doing is overwhelming me. It's what I have been given to myself. Where I don't have the platform or the foundation to do what I'm actually doing. So I had to stop and just reassess, you know, a journaling practice, which is new for me. It's just to write down my thoughts with no prompts, which has been wild to do, you know, just navigating, you know, beautiful things like love, family, opportunities, just to have a kind of a diary, you know, like almost having like a, my own ongoing time capsule of where I'm at. So those are my practices that I've been using. I love all of that. And also talking about replenishing yourself with whatever those practices may be. Mm -hmm. Mine are often cooking, playing music, really resting. Yeah. Sleep, sleep became a part of my practice in the last five years. And mm -hmm. I'd say that without being facetious, like sleep before was, I need to get a little bit so I can keep going but you never get replenished. But to get an actual full eight hours sleep, you're a different human being. And for that not to be a hyper-caffeinated or a medicated or an alcohol-induced or a drug-induced sleep, but a real yeah. sleep, those sorts of things are, are really it. Because navigating different worlds and the norms of different worlds, like the behaviors of different worlds, let's call corporate out, mm -hmm. right? And to say for folks who, like you and I, who have to work with corporate but don't work in corporate, I have all my yeah. own companies, but I have to then work in, to understand those rhythms and the flows of it can be very frustrating or can be destabilizing yeah. and probably vice versa, right? Not probably, it is vice versa. For corporate yeah. to then work with independents or entrepreneurs, it can be the exact same destabilization. And you coach me in this sometimes where I'm like, Funny. I don't know what, the, I don't know, we're in a conversation. I'm like, I don't know what this means. Can you help me out? After being an entrepreneur for 30 years, I still, I guess you being up on music is the mm -hmm. same as you being up on the way to communicate with different factions. Let's say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll be right back. Folks, welcome back to Better. We are with my brother, Aunt Denby. And it sounds like you're able through your practices to separate the emotion from getting the job done and also still being able to hold who you are without mm -hmm. getting lost or letting the ego take over that that was a failure and yeah. any specific practices aside from the ones you listed that help you delineate that? Well, I would say one thing that's uh, kind of a beacon for me is the fact that I do many things, right? I'm adjacent to many things, right? So by being adjacent, I don't subscribe to the norms of those things if they were singular, if that makes sense. And I had to learn because for a while, you know, I had my hands in different pies, but all the pies were things that were aligning with me. And I had a hard time explaining what I do, right? So, and I devalue myself for a long time because of that. But now I see the beauty of having that polymath of possibility in me to do different things, but show up fully as myself on those things. So like when I'm in the music business, like I used to work at record companies, I don't anymore, but I work with them adjacently. I can color outside the lines that they prescribe for themselves and do things differently. So now I've done that so much, and I think so well, from my opinion, I'm known for doing that. You know, Ant's always on that that next left thing. Let's get Ant to do this. We have this artist who doesn't fit in our traditional marketing plan. Let's get Ant to bring him into culture. Because Ant's out there in the fringes, you know, you know, looking for what's next and like talking to the youth and, you know, and being a student. 
I think, and also that's it. Being a student of these things too, and constantly learning has helped me tremendously. And even learning about things that I'm not even working in. Like right now I've been like studying AI for a minute now, just to see, you know, I'm not looking to start chat GPT five, you know, but AI will affect music supervision, you know? So I want to know when that arrives to the industries that I'm creating in, I'm well-versed in the technology, right? So I'm always looking out there for other things to learn and sharpen my tools, whether they fit my toolbox today or five years from now. Absolutely. And I think that level of curiosity gets lost on us because we're not given permission to play. Yeah. And we have all these fears. And when we even say AI, I can feel the listeners on the other side of this Mm -hmm. tensing up a little bit. Yeah. On one hand, we're like, okay, yeah. the, the robots are coming for me. Yeah. And on the other hand, we're hearing verses from Frank Ocean that he's never recorded. Which is wild. <laughs> and then the flip of that is we're like, oh, I can have entire theses written for me and they're better than what I could probably write. Yeah. And it happens in about 17 minutes. Like, yeah. All of these different things. Of course, our life is going to change dramatically, but because of your expertise... When we're on the fringe of anything, and I can remember back to being the fringe of the internet, and the internet promised us stronger advocacy, stronger organizing. It promised us that we were going to be able to be part of the uprising to like shake the foundations of companies. But instead, those companies grab the internet, and it feels like they've been using it against us consistently. Right. So as you're exploring new methodologies, yeah. how do you keep curious instead of fearful? Well, I know that's a great question. And I think just being avoidant of these things is you're playing yourself. Yes. It's, it's in motion. The train's moving. I think with AI, you know, the plane's being flown without wings while it's being built at real time. So I just, I think about just from my perspective, how I view the world for AI in particular, right? I think about who's designing AI. Are folks who look like me in those rooms? Probably not, right? Right. So, and we're already de- dealing with cognitive bias anyway. That would be 100X with AI because we're not in those rooms. So what can I do in my spaces to learn about those things. I don't have a tech background, but I may know people who are in tech, you know, how would this affect what you're designing for the future? Mm-hmm. So the design is intentional based on multiple voices and not just the voices they're creating it. And this comes to exactly a junction I was hoping we get to. Okay. Which is how do we insert more of the voices that matter? Voices of color, voices of mixed gender, voices mm-hmm. of lived experience, because often things are dictated to people who are experiencing quote unquote poverty or whatever that may be. And it is a bunch of, white cis dudes in a room, been in those rooms, making decisions based on their best assumption or instinct to say, this is what I understand or what I think that experience might be like versus having somebody with lived experience in the room. And I've been in rooms with you where that lived experience is included, created them myself, been the ones you've created. How do we change culturally? Because now we're all aware. It's after the last three years. Nobody is confused about what has to happen, but I don't see personally a lot of it actually happening. So how do we change those conversations in those larger rooms, having worked and continuing to work with corporate on a very large scale? I think the answer is evolving. One thing I will say is that I think we need to stop talking and just listen. I think you're brilliant at this. You know, I've watched you do this. Anyone that you're in service to, you know, you come there first and you sit and just listen to what that needs actually are from them. So when you're using your gifts to design things that can be of service to them, they have sovereignty in your ideas. Does that make sense? Absolutely, it does. Because I think we live in a world where, oh, I can fix this. I'm going to go give them A, B, and C. But you didn't ask them about DEF because you don't talk to them. So I think it, it requires us to like make an investment and spend time and just listening. You know, right now, as you know, 
I've been working with a bunch of artists who do publisher and work around the world as a mentor, right? And sure, I'm their mentor in these situations, but they're mentoring me too because I get a chance to learn where they're at to see how I could help them. And I ask them questions first that are empowering and I don't involve myself in their answers. So even if I do have advice for them, I may word it in saying, you know, what I heard you say is A, B, and C versus me saying, why don't you do? I'll say, based on that, have you ever considered and I'll insert an idea for them to sit with. So they're sovereign in making a decision whether they do it or not. And then seeing what gifts you have, what resources, what access you have to actually help them based on their needs. I remember one time I was um, doing a homeless outreach with Hashtag Lunch back years ago and I was giving out sandwiches with these handwritten notes and I gave someone a sandwich. He's like, I don't know, I don't want this. And my ego, I got offended because I'm thinking like, I'm here trying to help you. And he was like, you didn't ask me what I needed. And I'll never forget that. You didn't ask me what I needed. You know, I was doing what I thought was a good thing, but I didn't give him his dignity and his sovereignty and what he needed. So I think answer your question is listening and making people a part of their own solutions. So they have sovereignty and they can take it forward without you even being involved. A hundred percent. And thank you for sharing that part because I think, I don't think, I know sometimes people just want to talk. Sometimes yeah. People need socks. We've designed dinners very specifically where the takeaway is a pair of socks and the ask was to give it to somebody who's unhoused. And, you know, 99 out of the 100 people are confused by why. Yeah. Until they aren't. And that's from lots of listening. Yeah. Right. Little bits of pieces of yeah. understanding somebody else's human experience through listening and then showing up, reflecting that listening is how to truly be in service in all ways whether it's a relationship, an interpersonal relationship, a loving relationship, are you hearing me to try and end this or are you listening to me to try and improve this? Exactly. Can I share one more thing about this too? Like I think about New York has a very big homeless problem, right? And, you know, people are often on the train asking for support, asking for money and people do the traditional thing where they put their head down and they just look at their phone scrolling and they don't look at the person. So if they don't see anything, they have to do anything, right? And I may not have any money in that moment, but I always make a point to look at that person in the eye and tell us like, I'm sorry, I can't help in this moment. You know, it's just that small look of acknowledging someone's humanity and their personhood could change their day. That could be way more than the two bucks I may have to give them in my pocket. You say, I see you and I can't help, and I, but I see you. I see you out here. We're all out here asking for something, Mark whether it be on a train, whether it be an unvoiced concern with a friend, we're all out here asking for something. We're all panhandling in some way and is expressed in different ways. So if we just meet that with, I see you, there's a beauty in that exchange. That could be Jesus, Ant. Facts. That could be Jesus. Any given moment, man. And I think and about that too. I'm you sure know? you do. I think about it. You told me that story the first time five years ago. Like, yeah. obviously, this is my entire world we're talking about right yeah. now. This is the work of yeah. trying to break that isolation and trying to break that isolation on both sides. Because there's not a single human that I don't design experiences for my window that's two blocks away that some 50 to 60 people will walk up to today and get a hot meal and have a conversation with my guy, Winston. Like That part of breaking isolation and commitment to service isn't about curing hunger when a third of the planet is starving or malnourished, I mean, I'm not egotistical enough or arrogant enough to think that we can take on that battle solo. That's a lifelong, I hope that my shoulder, somebody can stand on and do the work. But today, yeah. what can I do? 
Yeah. Today, I can absolutely be in service to a few thousand people who need to eat. I can definitely be in service to people who need that isolation broken. I can be in service to people who need to be loved. And if every individual took what you just said and applied it to the way they move in the world, yeah. imagine the world we live in. And this is people say, why do you love New York? For that. What you yeah. just said. Why do I love the Maritimes? For that. Yeah. People don't look away as often. They still look away, but not as often. Yeah. Right. And so the fact that somebody could sit on the street here on Hastings Street, unceded territories of the Squamish Nation here in Vancouver, mm-hmm. and ask for just a conversation or anything all day long and be ignored. Yeah. Is where we got lost. If I had a centering design point, what we're not realizing is the emotional damage to being the person that looks away. Man. Imagine why people are so addicted to caffeine, to sugar, to the way that they work, et cetera, is because they get up. Let's use New York as an example. I'm getting up at 39th and 30th. I'm jumping on the RW. Mm-hmm. By the time I've gotten to my train a block away, I've seen somebody unhoused. Not maybe, definitely. I get yeah. off on Manhattan. I pop up out at the park. I'm seeing either a family or somebody else unhoused. In my yeah. five block walk to work, I'm seeing two or three more people. I am clocking that emotionally. Regardless, mm-hmm. I can pretend I'm not seeing it. I'm seeing it. Yeah. My peripheral is seeing it. My heart is seeing it. My soul is seeing it. My body is seeing it. I get to work. I'm frustrated. I didn't wake yeah. up frustrated. I'll tell you where the emotion's coming from. We shouldn't be living like this. It's insane. Yeah. And so you making the acknowledgement, regardless if it's money or not, and often I've seen you, it is. That's all that a person needs is acknowledgement. Yeah, one of the biggest human needs is being seen. Acknowledged. I remember one time me and my friend Kevin were going for a walk in Union Square. I was like, I'm going to go to get some food. I was like, I need to go stop by and see my friend Jack real quick. He said, cool. On the way, so we're walking over. He didn't know Jack was a house man I met two days ago. Right. And I sat down on the ground and just talked to Jack for like 10 minutes. And he got robbed in the park. He was bruised up when I saw him last time. His bruises healing. I asked him how that was going. We talked for a while. And I was like, you know, do you need any help today? He says, no, I'm actually good. And he said, recently, there was an outreach for people who were unhoused for the census. And... So I checked with me and I told him about you. So thank you. And my friend Kevin was just like in the corner, just kind of quiet. And then we walked away. He was like, bro, that was my vote. I had no idea. That was your friend, Jack. And I said, they're Jacks all around here, bro. You know, but now Kevin goes out there and he looks for his Jack to help people. That's how things change. We're all wired that way. We just forget that by our aspirations and other things. The aspirations and the overwhelm of our life or the fear of not having something that somebody asks for. Yeah. And I think that releasing that fear and just being able to say, I may not be able to help or I can't help you today, yeah. but I hope that you have a good one or whatever that conversation may look like. And thank you for walking it, man. We were talking about Humble Riot briefly before, but I think it's important to talk about it because it is 13 years this year. Am I correct? Yeah. It's, uh, wow. yeah, 13 years. Wow. wow. And so- you know, you saying that in your, your first year of it, your friends celebrating you stepping out into doing this thing. And now it is attached to, I think, the most culturally relevant programming that crosses generations. Thank you. That really does create space for people from 80 years old to eight years old to come together and experience culture and what's next. And so what is next for you? What are you most excited about? I'm most excited about um, continuing to do music supervision. As you know, we had the show Southside on HBO Max. We did three seasons. I'm very proud of that work. And just using that platform to amplify um, new voices in music. I'm really looking forward to diving deeper into experiences, um, redesigning um, gatherings that really connect people 
uh, provide narrative change and amplify new voices. For instance, this weekend in LA, we have EatsCon coming up with a bevy of amazing speakers, um, including Iowa DeBerry from The Bear, John Gray from Ghetto Gastro, um, amazing performances, Rami Youssef, um, all talks on all things food and culture, you know, from a very impactful lens. Um, we're getting ready to do a big retreat for a bunch of artists um, that we are supporting in the California Redwoods, about 120 people designed around celebrating all we've done together the past five years with also linking them with each other in very human ways so they can collaborate, see each other and be support systems for each other. So I'm excited about just using my, the ideas I'm able to have and hold to uplift others, um, clubhouse platforms to see each other and um, amazing creative spaces, whether it be, you know, art, design, food, music, and culture. And also growing for myself, bro. Just the more I grow, the more Humble Riot has the ability to grow as well. Too. Critical, critical. And then the inner work that you continue to do then becomes the outer work. Yeah. Right. And so doing that inner work and then allowing it to become outside uh, is also a distillation in your expertise. And I think often in the curation space, people don't understand the quote unquote expertise and yeah. how humans move and how humans best express themselves is about building and creating the container for that success. And when we say container, yeah. it could be the experience. And so I want you to think about, I always use a restaurant analogy, the best restaurant meal you've had you think about the food for certain, but you really truly think about everything else that happened to allow that experience to be there and the company that you had and the conversation that yeah. was able to be had. Take that out into your life. Like what are the ways that you interact with your human when you come home or your family or what that looks like? Like what are the first words? Are they exhaustion and oh my God, my day? Or are they, I'm so excited to see you and I'm home. The latter energy is what I experience in the events that you've created. And I've always felt that way, having been part of EatsCon and really enjoyed my time with it. Uh, I just love the way that you build spaces. So in the intentionality of that, I ask this last question because I think it's really important. When you're building things like this and you have so many people at the table and they all have a stake in it, and for something of EatsCon's level, corporate sponsors all over the place. And of course, they have a want and an ask. How do you make sure that you keep that container safe for the people who you bring and invite to experience and express themselves in the best way? You know, I do the best to put them in a position or conversation that amplifies their truer stories, you know, and that goes even down to selecting the right moderator, you know, to engage in dialogue with them, to really un architect and unearth like things they don't know we talk about that are meaningful to them. And I involve them in the creative process. Any person I put on the stage, you're not walking up there cold. We're having a conversation, we're diving in together to talk about these things. I remember um, for EastCon in New York, I did a conversation called Rappers Who Cook, you know, what Bumby and Black thought and our girl Jacqueline Snyder on the mod. And we had a talk beforehand to talk about, you know, what are we walking together? What are we co-creating together? So my job is to plant the seed and the idea and provide the water. They grow what's there, you know, and they're growing from what they're inspired by. And, and, and I always discuss topical things that they're inspired by right now or things they're not known for that they want to talk about that's relevant to the focus of the conversation. So I'm always mindful of new stories versus what they're doing on their press junkets. Like what's a new story you want to tell right now? So folks who know you and love you walk away seeing you in a new way and they feel closer to you. I love that. And that feels like a really good prompt. And I've got three questions to finish us out here today. First of all, let's imagine we're back on campus, but it's right now. And I run into you and I'm like, what am I listening to? Like, what am I about to be listening to? Who am I looking for right now? 
who are the artists that are just really it for you right now? Um, I'm really into um, this artist named Neon the Wanderer out of the UK. He's an MC vocalist, kind of has a, a raga, um, kind of Jamaican dub vibe to him, but it's just a vibey thing. I'm listening to um, Yaya Bay, who's an artist in Brooklyn. Uh, the new Madison McFerrin music is really amazing. I'm listening to um, this amazing, amazing drummer, Yusuf Days out of the UK. I can just watch him play for hours. It's like mesmerizing the way he controls rhythm and the way he imbibes his instrument. So I'm really, really feeling him a lot right now. All right. Well, we're going to link all of those in the episode notes so people can get a soundtrack before and after. And the last question I've got for you is around love. I yeah. think as we move in the world, I have a tattooed all over my body. I've recently really found it personally, profoundly in my relationship. And I see you move with love for fellow man forever. Like since we met day one, I've watched you. We've heard stories about it today. How is love showing up for you right now in your life and the way that you're moving in the world? Love is showing up in my deeper connection with my family as we're navigating some health challenges, showing up deep there, showing up in my romantic life with a wonderful, wonderful, exceptional woman who's coming to my life, who I've known for a while that we connected, Tessa, who is mind-blowingly amazing and who has met me in a way I've never been met before mm. by a partner. And I'm learning what that feels like to embrace that and experience that. Um, and also just the love of, of music. You know, music was a thing that chose me when I was very young. So I'm tapping deeper to it, tapping deeper back into it. And I'm looking for a way this year to go back to reinvest in my musicianship, you know, but pick something up again. I'll say that more about that later. But like, those are things that, you know, and love is the heartbeat. You know, love is what drives what we're doing, even at times we forget. And, um, and just love of the life that, um, that I've been fortunate enough to live and lead and create and experience and be impacted by and learn from. So just the love of life. Yeah, love that. And congratulations on creating this life over 30, almost 30 years of incredibly hard work and dedication to a singular path, right? And that path being to truly share what you've shared with us today, uh, but to allow and to empower and put batteries in the back of so many artists. Like whenever we have a conversation, 10 or 12 more strings come out of like, oh yeah, I was in that room, et cetera. And if thinking about the tools that I wanted people to come away with today is of course, knowing who you were. Because when we say pull back the curtain, there's so many things culturally that if we pull back the curtain, you were standing there. And it's really important for us to honor the architects. And you are definitely yeah. one of those. But secondly, I just wanted people to understand that it doesn't have to be about the chest beating. And I know we're moving into a realm and a new, I guess, awareness that it's not about the accolades. It truly is about yeah. how you show up. And the product that comes out of that showing up is a more loving society. So thank you for all of those things. Thank you. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience that you believe would make their lives a little bit better? I would say be kind. I think, you know, we are all walking around this life with stories, you know, stories that are supportive, stories that hinder us. And I think if we're more compassionate to each other, we will have an easier way of relating to each other. And also a reminder that, um, you know, we are human beings. We're not human doings, mm. you know? And we all come here with gifts to be of service to each other, to help each other, to learn and grow. So spend time to really do that self-reflection and deep inquiry to find out what those gifts are and share them unselfishly. That's what I would say. I'm just staring at the mic with my hands up right now, <laughs> folks. That's it. Mic drop. And in all of our conversations, I often wonder if I'm being interviewed or vice versa. So 
thank you for again for spending your time and your life force with us, brother. Uh, for those of you listening, as always, I appreciate your attention and your intention for tuning into this show. Smash that subscribe button if you haven't already. And if you feel that this conversation is important to somebody that you love, please share it with them. That's why we show up to do this. So love you and thank you for being with us today. Love you, brother. Truly an honor. Folks, I will see you again in a few short weeks. You've been on better. I am your host, Mark Brand. This is season two and it don't stop.